Scarlett Moore. Uh, she's a um, graduating student at UVM and an organizer and a key founder of the Bread and Roses Collective. So, Alex, Sanders is out. Uh, yes, he dropped out of the race last week and has now endorsed Joe Biden uh, to be president of the United oh. States. Um, and there is a lot of fallout from that that we're going to be discussing. Um, what are your initial thoughts? Well, um, I have so many initial thoughts, Alex, like what happens to the political revolution and the fact that Sanders's program uh, was not the same or didn't really align so well with, with Biden. Yeah, well, it seems like Sanders himself is going to be campaigning hard for Biden, just like he did for Hillary Clinton. But um, I've seen a lot more backlash this time around from Sanders supporters than I did in 2016. Um, so massive statements that were not supporting Joe Biden from uh, Sanders chapters around the country and from uh, Sanders advisors in a way that we didn't see before. Um, but it is still really unclear what direction all that energy is going to go in. Well, it's going to be co-opted by the Democratic Party. I mean, I think, um, uh, hey, I'm Scarlett. I'm very uh, jazzed to be on the podcast today. Um, I think that this time around, it's uh, it's a little bit tougher to say what's going to happen than in 2016. Um, I think because there's been such a vehement um, backlash from especially student organizations that were supporting Bernie from DSA chapters, um, I think that there's a much uh, clearer sense that the Democratic Party um, isn't good enough for working people. Um, and I think coupled with that, uh, now that stimulus checks are starting to be distributed, um, is that I think a lot of uh, working class people who maybe haven't been involved in uh, socialist politics at all or really consider themselves on the left are now um, watching the Democratic Party doing, you know, fucking nothing for them while, you know, Trump is signing his name on stimulus checks to send out to a lot of families. So I think that there's a there's a polarizing moment, which makes it a little bit tougher to say how um, effectively the Democratic Party is going to be able to um, co-opt that energy into um, uh, more electoral action. I would say it also makes it interesting for leaders in DSA who um, I think saw the Sanders campaign as um, uh, polarizing in a really good way as expanding folks' class consciousness and seeing that as uh, one of the ways that uh, the foundation was laid for like the 2018 strike wave and whatnot. That's an analysis that I really disagree with. Um, I think that um, that does lead to a kind of logical conclusion that it's more left-wing insurgent campaigns either in the Democratic Party or outside of it, similarly to like Shama Sawant, um, that could be the direction that, you know, folks who have been involved in DSA or in the Sanders campaign go. But not that still doesn't really uh, get at the heart of how most people are um, exploited on a day-to-day -day basis. It doesn't um, challenge um, the, the problems that people face in their day-to-day -day life in a terribly effective way. So it's kind of tough to see what the outcome of this is going to be. 
I, I mean, I think that there is two possible reactions here for uh, DSA members or Sanders supporters. Um, one is that people have now like seen the Democratic Party screw them over twice in a row. Um, and hopefully a lot of those people are going to be um, completely disinterested in the electoral process going forward and willing to explore new types of organizing. Um like base building, which we'll talk about later on the show. Um, but I think that there is uh, the real danger, and I think that this is going to be a lot more common amongst uh, leaders in DSA and in the Sanders movement, um, which is doubling down on those down-ballot uh, electoral races with progressive Democrats. And that is where the co-optation can continue for the Democratic Party. I mean, I uh, I was dis- disinfatuated with uh, American electoral politics uh, at the time that I was in the uh, Vermont Progressive Party and I ran for office and I was elected as inspector of elections and I worked as an inspector of elections uh, appointed um, in during Super Tuesday and it was it was during that day that I was completely disinfatuated because I was reminded of the fact that uh, colored people like me don't really have a place in, in this politics. Um, take the example of uh, Senator Sanders when he talks about Palestinians. The first thing that he always does, always, is that he affirms his position uh, of, of defending Israel and he says... Uh, is the Israeli state deserves security and Palestinians? Oh, just just give them respect, right? But you know, Palestinians have respect. What Palestinians need is is security. What they need is is freedom and solidarity. So the way that I see it is that with electoral politics, especially in the Democratic Party, nobody makes any headway unless they uh, step on our necks. Uh, they have to uh, squash some sort of identity group to get get things done. This is this is what uh, this is what pushed me away. Like I probably would have uh, liked to work in American electoral politics, but there was no place uh, for me for me there. Yeah, and it's organizing outside of. Uh... I mean, the idea that, like, as revolutionaries, we could ever take over a capitalist state is contradicted by things like that. There are fundamental, um, there are fundamental features of the capitalist state, uh, an imperialist state in the United States, that can't be overcome by individuals uh, get, being elected to office. And it's by building an independent movement that makes demands upon that state and then eventually overthrows it that we can actually build change for everybody uh, around the world and everybody within the United States. Um, but that is lost when we commit ourselves to these electoral campaigns. Scott, what, what do you think of, uh, say, in the UK, they, they have a Labour Party. Um, do you think if, if you were British, say, <laughs> right, would you... Uh, would that be your uh, affiliation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's 
tough to draw a completely direct parallel between the Labour Party and the Democratic Party, just because I think the the Democratic Party is built very differently. It doesn't have a membership base in the same sense. It doesn't have um, really any uh, structures for members or for people who consider themselves Democrats to exercise decision-making power within the party. Um, there's a pretty top-down party leadership. And, you know, that's in large parts, you know, similar to the Labour Party, but there are definitely some important differences. I tend to think that, and I want to talk about this more when we get to base building specifically, but I tend to think that the question of what uh, resources we can distribute back to um, ourselves as a working class and what victories we can have, um, especially when it comes to fighting oppression and to, um, you know, abolishing prisons, to disarming and abolishing the cops, um, things like that, that working people, uh, people of color, women and queer and trans folks really need. These are things that uh, we're always going to have to fight for. We're always going to have to demand in a really, um, uh, in contrast to the interests of the state. And I think historically, a lot of the major um, redistributive policies that have been put in place, especially in in the United States, um, have not come from radical or left-wing or insurgent or even often like really liberal uh, politicians. Like um, they have always been the results of, you know, uh, working class movements, building the kind of power that you can't say no to, um, building a real organization on the ground that's capable of forcing action. And I think that uh, it's a mistake to think that we'll be able to win anything on the same scale um, by knocking on doors for candidates compared with, uh, you know, signing up our coworkers to be part of a union or um, talking to our neighbors about joining a tenants union um, and then building organizations that fully unapologetically represent the interests of working people to fight for the things we need. Um, And I think it's tough because um, there are small victories that folks can see and how the narrative changes a little bit when AOC gets into office. But, you know, having AOC in office, having Rashida Tlaib in office, having Ilhan Omar in office, um, these things are, you know, they're good, but they don't fundamentally like change people's day-to-day lives in the way that building um, grassroots organizations can. Um, so I, I the, to answer the, the question in a super <laughs> roundabout way, um, I think I would be, um, even whether I was in England or the U S or anywhere else. Um, I think that, uh, so like explicitly socialist organizations, labor unions, tenants unions, that's where I would be, um, not putting my energy into the labor party, especially now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more. I was afraid we want to get to because it seems like you had uh, totally dodged the question. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think there are some lessons for us from the Labor Party, despite the differences that you mentioned, and especially for um, the DSA. I mean, it's hard to say that there's like one DSA strategy because there isn't. There's a, a wide variety of people doing uh bunch of different things in DSA. But um, labor has a a history of people trying to enter into the labor party and change it in a socialist way. Um, 
And in a sense, they did this 30 years before today, and we can see some of the results in the current Labor Party leader. Um, Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer, who's the new, he replaced Corbyn after the electoral defeat. Um, and his policies today are kind of, you know, uh, I saw that they're described as soft left as opposed to like Corbin hard left. I don't really know what that means. I guess he calls for nationalizing some stuff. Um, but you know, the other day he made very strongly pro Zionist statements in response to the labor party anti-Semitism controversy and said that, um, he believes that all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Um, so we can see the rollback there from uh, Corbyn, who is more radical than Sanders. Um, but if you look uh, at Keir Starmer's history, uh, he was uh, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, a part of that attempt to change the Labor Party. Keir Starmer was involved in a group called Labor Militant. Um, which was a Trotskyist group that tried to infiltrate the Labor Party and take it over what? to become a socialist organization. You hate to see it. You hate to see it. You do. You really do. Okay. This is what I want to understand. How do you go from being a militant Trotskyist into a Zionist soft labor kind of thing? I mean, I think it's the, that's the, the fundamental truth to um, that you can really gain from the history of labor militant, which maybe we should uh, have a episode on that at some point, or at least a segment on it. Um, I was a member of Socialist Alternative here in the United States, which is a descendant of that group. Um, so we learned a lot of that history, which SA is now... Uh, you know, I was taught to be critical of labor militant when I was an SA, but then if you actually look at what SA is really doing, it's really very quite similar to what labor militant did in the 80s. Um, so that would be an interesting thing to unpack. But it's that it, when individuals or even a, a small organized group enter an institution, that institution either kicks them out or changes the individual. It doesn't let them stay in as this hostile body within the host, and it doesn't let them take it over and change it. It changes the people that stay inside that institution. So I expect that in 2040, if major things haven't changed, we'll see AOC and Ilhan Omar or the, the layer of people that survive from this progressive um, insurgency into the Democratic Party will be centrists they might say some progressive things but their actual policies will be quite moderate if they've survived and the people that have actually uh, stayed committed to progressivism will have been long since primaried or expelled in some other way yeah i mean i like i really tend to agree with that i think the one thing that changes the equation a little bit i mean not in the grand scheme of things i generally agree with the way that you're laying that out, but it's, you know, it's really hard to say what the world is going to look like 40 years from now. Like we're right now we're recording this under quarantine um, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we're talking about stimulus checks that are going to a section of the working class in the U S but not everyone. Um, certainly uh, undocumented workers are left out of that, even though they're, 
um, you know, paying taxes, uh, a lot of students, uh, people like young folks are left out of that. So um, we have this huge economic crisis uh, kind of looming over our heads and uh, a continually politically polarizing situation um, between the harder and harder right and uh, people radicalizing to the left. So um, to say that in 40 years, AOC is going to be a, <laughs> um, moving so uh, significantly to the center, like, sure, I think that there's a very real possibility that that would be the case in, you know, if we had 40 years to <laughs> um, develop. I, it's, I mean, yeah, yeah it's that's so hard if to say. we fail. That's yeah, that's, <laughs> that's if we fail. If we fail, oh my gosh. and we have to uh, address that by having different strategies as a left and not just repeating the same mistakes. Definitely. See, this is why I'm becoming more and more interested in uh, having an anti-racism focus because with anti-racism, you are striking the heart of the system. Like this is this is the understanding that. For capitalism to survive, it depends on racism. Uh, this is going back like 300, 400 years with, with the sugar industry, right? Mm -hmm. And up till today, we still, we still have that with the coffee, with the uh, iPhone minerals and everything else. Um, I, I, I want to see anti-racism militancy. Because that's pretty much what the structure of the capitalist parties can never tolerate. You can never, like, even, even Rashida Tlaib for, uh, being, uh, a Palestinian American senator, she, I, I've, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but she did not voice support for BDS, uh, and the same for Ilhan Omar. She, like she, she took a lot of shit for talking uh, in favor of Palestinian rights, but still, there seems to be this point that they can't argue for. They can't go as far as BDS. They can't do anything meaningful, meaningfully progressive for us, for for um, colored people, and which is like working class, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, also, I mean, when it comes to even like liberals or progressives taking office, um, especially for white liberals and progressives taking office, like uh, when folks start moving to the center, it's anti-racist demands that folks generally roll over on the earliest. It's those um, issues which are uh, called, you know, uh, too difficult to, to deal with right now or um, too unrealistic or too radical, or we need the cops because they're public servants, like, fuck you. But um, I mean, we were recording this again in Burlington, Vermont, which is often uh, sort of celebrated as this little um, liberal haven. And um, we had, you know, uh, we had a city councilor, Perry Freeman, very briefly, I think, bring up the idea, even the idea of disarming the police um, and even progressive members, even members of her own progressive party immediately shot down um, that idea. And uh, you can see like in uh, the sort of microcosm in Burlington and that one decision, like how um, 
uh, terrified um, most people in electoral politics are of actually addressing questions of race and racism in a structural way, in large part because um, it's uh, structures of racism are so foundational to how the state functions, to how the economy functions, um, and we can't uh, compromise on any of that. Yeah, this country was founded on guns. Uh, I think we uh, in the U.S. have to face that historical fact. We have to make some sort of peace with it. And by saying we have to make peace with it is to honor treaties with uh, the uh, indigenous peoples on on this country. Uh, Guns is... Uh, the the issue of guns is 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 so inextricably tied to the fact that these are stolen lands, um, and I I think this is one thing that we have to keep pushing for in our city council. Yeah, I think it's also like a, a matter of um, like a lot of things that we're fighting for cannot be won at like a local level as well. Um, which is, I mean, we can get into the conversation about base building. Um, but I think it like just continues to demonstrate the need that we need a, um, uh, a movement, which is organized at like every level of, uh, like our society from a local level, um, to, uh, international level. Um, and that by doing so, um, we're able to encompass, uh, all the different demands, all the different needs of people around the world in the working class. Um, and that is not served by kind of, uh, electoral campaigns or, um, by, uh, small insular, uh, socialist movements, but, um, by, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what is going to be needed to get us there. Um, but that's what we're trying to figure out as an organization and other people are trying to figure out across the country. Um, and, uh, base building is one idea of how we start to get there. All right. And we'll find more about base building after the break with Scarlett Moore. Do, 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 do. I don't know what's that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the break segment thingy. Okay. I really strongly think that we should leave in the bits where Holland hums the international, followed by like a clip from no! the actual international. I think that would be awesome. <laughs> oh my god. All right. I mean, I could sing the Arabic version if you like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay we're back and i'm very excited to ask the question of what is base building scarlet yeah sure um so base building is a term that's becoming increasingly popular on the left um in socialist organizations especially uh even in dsa um which i wouldn't say is uh, an organization defined by a base building as a strategy. Um, 
it uh, base building essentially means you're creating a base of support within a given population, um, or people are taking action to bring about a particular political or, or economic change um, uh, that are like rooted in a given population or demographic or body of people. Um, and base building isn't something that's specific to the left. Right wing organizations also do base building. Um, but for socialists, it generally means building organizations that are rooted in the working class, uh, whose membership and whose leadership is made up of working people um, and are representative of the whole body of the class and all the identities that working class people hold. Um, so uh, what, well, sorry, I'll let you ask more questions rather than just going off for a while. <laughs> so uh, that, that sounds very, very broad. Um... Can you, okay, so how how do you imagine base building can be at, at this level? Like we're in this organization and like you want to build some sort of a base. Who are, who are your audience? What, where do you, who do you reach out to? So uh, base building for socialist organizations um, means that when we're uh, talking about expanding as an organization, uh, we're not trying to recruit people who are already activists, who are um, the same old folks who are turning out to protest after protest, who are um, engaged in the movement, who are um, making decisions about where they're able to invest their time and their energy um, based on having um, plenty of time and energy to like give to those movements, because uh, that tends to be... Um, that tends to create ne networks of activists who are participating in the same movements, but really aren't uh, creating, uh, you know, mass organizations of uh, working people that are able to actually enact change. So for socialist groups, uh, we really, um, as socialists, we don't want to see ourselves as separate from the working class. Uh, we want to understand that our role in our communities uh, is not just as like people who identify with a particular socialist organization who work with that group, um, but who are workers, who um, have co-workers, who are renters and tenants, who have neighbors, um, who are uh, people who um, experience um, particular forms of oppression based on the many identities we hold and share those identities with other people in our communities. Um, and organize around those organic connections that we have with each other. Um, base building is really about, um, I think, uh, recognizing that uh, socialist organizations need to be deeply embedded in our own class and building power through our own class, thinking about that uh, strategically in terms of uh, where we can connect with the people already in our ne networks to make real demonstrable change, like organizing a workplace and winning um, safer working conditions or better wages um, for our coworkers and for ourselves, things like that. Um, I've read about uh, base building that there's often, uh, there's obviously some contrast between base building strategy and electoral strategy, but also um, a contrast between base building and sort of like protest centric styles of organizing. Could you talk a little bit about like what a base building project looks like and how it differs from some other ways that um, like quote unquote activism is often done? 
Yeah. Um, so there are, so there are a couple of parts to the question you asked. So I'm going to leave the question about <laughs> electoralism behind and focus on the second part of that. Yeah, so we we're not here all day. day. <laughs> um, and yeah, we can come back to the electoral question later if you want. Um, I think a great organization to look at that does not do base building is um, like the Women's March um, to kind of set a, a, some kind of contrast here. So the Women's March uh, was organized as a direct response to the Trump administration coming into power. Um, and its central organizing task was about mobilizing millions of people around the world, particularly uh, women. And you could uh, critique particularly like cisgender middle class women. Um, but I think, you know, there was a, there was intention to make it broader than that. Um, but it was largely about turning out in the streets uh, for a number of one-off events, uh, engaging with folks who were uh, able to make it to mass protests in cities or in the capital. Um, and then after that, rather than forming uh, any kind of cohesive organization out of the people who participated in that, um, uh, it went back to being a kind of one-off event that happened every um, January 20th or uh, anniversary of Trump's inauguration, um, uh, and then trying to engage people in the electoral process, electing women, electing progressives. There was no um, really engagement with um, uh, organizing people where they were to form organizations, to form collectives, uh, but rather it was about mobilizing people with a particular broad goal um, and, uh, I think that while it had a big symbolic impact in terms of expressing solidarity, it didn't have a concrete impact of, um, creating structures at a local level that could survive beyond the brief period of time in which, uh, the women's marches were, um, grabbing folks' attentions and bringing new people into a kind of political moment. So base building is different from that. Go ahead. Uh, I want to compare that to, for example, the uh, electoral campaigns of Senator Bernie Sanders, because it does sound like what he was doing was also base building. I mean, he had a huge base, a, a huge <laughs> base, right? Uh, I, I don't know. It was spontaneous. Uh, he, he had a huge base uh, with his a campaign. Seems like a similar strategy, just a different tactic. Like he he does that he did that base building throughout four years, but the tactic here is uh, to get elected and then to continue that sort of political revolution sort of thing. Is that is that the base building that that you're talking about? Is it something different? Um, yeah, it is different. So. Um... When uh, commentators, for instance, talk about Sanders' base of support, they're talking about a group of people who are identifying with his campaign who are relatively uh, more organized than most other candidates. Um, people really were spontaneously and with organizations like DSA and with the Sanders campaign were um, engaging with their neighbors and were engaging with their coworkers around the campaign. Um, I wouldn't say that that is necessarily a base building project in the socialist sense. Um, I think that um, 
the uh, I think that has to do with the end goal of the process uh, in some ways. So the end goal of the process of organizing Sanders' base of support is to mobilize folks to vote for Sanders, and then Bernie Sanders, uh, in his uh, position as uh, president of the United States, would have been able to um, use executive power to wield influence in Congress um, to win reforms for working people. And while uh, he was generally pretty clear that he wouldn't be able to do that alone, um, his answer for how, uh, you know, he would be able to win things like Medicare for all for the working class uh, were about mobilizing people to get into the streets to protest for things like Medicare for all, rather than building the organizations capable of forcing Medicare for all into effect, um, like really radical labor unions um, that were able to use their position as workers at the uh, point of production or the point of social reproduction for more service workers um, to force these reforms into effect. Base building, I see as, um, for socialists in particular, uh, as something that's rooted really concretely, um, not just in the working class in the sense that we go to work and we're paid less than the value of what we produce, um, but that we're mobilizing our power as workers. Sorry, mobilizing is a bad word um, in this context, but um, that we're, we're recognizing that our power uh, as a working class comes from not paying rent, from refusing to work and organizing um, in a way that makes that an option, that makes that a real threat for people who are in positions of power um, so that we can win the things that we need. So could you uh, give an example of like what a socialist base building project would look like to get back to um, one of the questions from a couple minutes ago? Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, a socialist base building project um, would look more like um uh say folks who are you know members of the social of a socialist organization um for instance i'm a barista uh, i work at starbucks um and i'm in the bread and roses collective and i'm also uh you know connected with my coworkers um and i as you know, I think the Bread and Roses Collective is pretty cool. I think our politics are pretty good. And I want us to be able to grow as an organization and have, you know, more influence on the Burlington left. And as a worker, I know that it's really tough to pay rent when I'm making like eleven oh five an hour in a city with a really high cost of living. Um, and I know that um, as baristas with no union and no way to deal with, you know, bad management or, you know, issues with customers, um, that questions of oppression surface all the time at work, whether it's uh, questions of folks experiencing uh, racism, either institutional or interpersonal or sexism, et cetera, et cetera. So a base building project that uh, might make sense for uh, me to focus on, for instance, uh, could start with me um, bringing my coworkers and trying to win my coworkers into coming to Bread and Roses Collective meetings or joining the Bread and Roses Collective, but also organizing on site at our workplace um, through the lens of you know a socialist politics that uh, we do all the work it takes to make our store run, and so we should. Um, be making at the very least livable wages for the city that we live in, um, as well as 
organizing to create the power at our work site to deal with these bigger questions of uh, oppression and exploitation and not having any agency over the work that we're asked to do on a daily basis. Um, so base building as a socialist and as a barista for me um, could look like uh, on the one hand, trying to win a union campaign at my workplace that was democratically organized and led not just by me, but by um, tons of my other coworkers who were, you know, interested in dealing with this situation, um, but also trying to win my coworkers to uh, joining the Bread and Roses Collective and uh, thinking about our uh, place as workers through, you know, a socialist political perspective, because I would know that. Growing our organization um, is good for our organization. Having more voices, more perspectives, um, more people in the organization gives it a greater capacity to do more good in our community. And at the same time, my union at my workplace would be stronger for having socialists um, able to make very politicized cases for why we should um, fight for, for better wages and working conditions. I want to focus the lens a little bit on uh, non-unionized workers, because I think this is probably our biggest struggle in the U.S. Uh, You're a barista at Starbucks. I don't know how many or if there are any Starbucks unions in the U.S. I think there was one IWW local in New York City. I actually don't know if it exists anymore, but that is the only one that I know of in the entire global Starbucks uh, situation. Yeah. So that's one issue. And I mean, in time of COVID-19, the fact that in the U.S., uh, non-unionized healthcare workers uh, are trying to unionize and and they don't have a union. I think is if 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 we can't uh, have those unions established, I don't think we will have succeeded as as socialists. I mean, can you talk about uh, how base building can address those issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think. Um, I mean, what you're talking about is like such a huge question, right? Like in the United States, our unions, especially in the private sector, have been uh, shrinking as bosses, you know, have been getting smart about where they can uh, break up unions that are trying to form, break up bargaining units where possible, um, shift uh, where they're, you know, getting labor from to try and diminish unions that used to exist. Um, And of course, um, the movement toward more uh, service and gig workers means that um, there are new challenges to organizing those populations of workers and uh, no kind of like history of unionism as there uh, has been in uh, like manufacturing or logistics in the same way. So um, as socialists, I think it's Uh, a real responsibility of ours to think about how we're building uh, workers' power at a national and international level. Um, And for me, I really think that starts with building um, radical unions where possible, especially where workers are unorganized. But I would also say um, that folks who are socialists, who are in places 
um, that are already unionized shouldn't, you know, be fleeing to a job that isn't unionized to bring their skills there, but should be working to radicalize their coworkers, even in places that have unions. Um, because when we see victories of workers coming together, demanding change, and then forcing it into action, it's really inspiring. And it shows the rest of um, the body of the working class what's possible. And I think you know, the Chicago teachers, the LA teachers, West Virginia teachers, these are huge examples of that um, where, you know, I think socialists have to combine both a perspective of the importance of organizing the unorganized um, with at the same time a knowledge um, that it's, you know, also important to reform the unions that exist because um, we don't want them to go away anytime soon. Um, one maybe more controversial aspect of base building is that it is also, it's not just about unions, um, or about building new unions. Um, a lot of base building activity, uh, takes on projects outside of the workplace. Um, and this has received some criticism from other sector sections of the left. I read, um, in the uh, publication left voice a criticism of uh, certain base building activities as self-help and not political. Um, could you talk about uh, those critiques and kind of where you stand on them? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so base building, I, I tend to, I focus on unions because that's, I guess, the perspective that I'm coming from. I am uh, I also do work with the AFL-CIO in Vermont, in addition to socialist organizing, and um, I'm, you know, currently I'm always thinking about how to uh, deal with situations in my workplace. So that's the perspective I'm coming from and the experience that I have. Um, but base building um, is not just about the workplace; uh, it's about the working class. Um, and the working class doesn't exist only in their, you know, formal workplaces. They don't exist only as employees. Uh, we exist as tenants. We exist as members of our communities. Um, and base building can look like a lot of different things. Um, I think the key features of base building are that um, you're constantly expanding within uh, a membership of people who are working class, that uh, leadership is drawn from people who are um, new to the movement, that it's not uh, isolated within a group of sort of like expert socialists and that uh, it's not, um, it's, it's focused on uh, building change in communities and not just around like mobilizing for a single like one-off protest or a series of demands. Um, I do think um Oh, uh, and one thing too, so um, there's a one thing that's a popular way of thinking about base building for socialist organizations, especially for smaller groups, is this idea that a big part of base building is also about rebuilding trust between uh, socialists as um, a sort of political body and working people. Um, I think that um, where some of my uh, critiques of how base building is often used come in um, is around the, the question of, you know, are we putting our energy into things which really build power to make change? And I think there's a lot of debate about how, um, like, uh, focusing on mutual aid networks and um, 
uh, sort of less formal structures of workers' power fit into that picture. Um, yeah, if you want to ask more specific questions, I can get into that too. Yeah, I, um, I'm i interested in this issue of trust because in, it seems to me uh, that in, in base building, you're, you're trying to grow you know, larger and larger based on uh, labor activism. But at the same time, uh, what I'm concerned about is that uh, in, in this structure of, of racism, if, uh, if you want to grow a popular labor uh, movement, the, the issue of race is going to come up. For example, uh, the, um, the issues around uh, military, right, or, or, or war or um, anything that has to do with how uh, colored people are perceived and I mean, it's a sad fact that the, there's that term even because people of color aren't just one people. It's like there's there's so much detail and nuance. Yeah, um, absolutely. But there's still there's still those those issues. How do you think uh, base building um, can resolve the issue of trust between uh, the sort of uh, base building? uh labor unions and uh and colored people yeah um i think um to start i think that uh base building is a useful way of thinking about how we build power as organizations and as workers um but it isn't in itself any kind of coherent strategy for winning um even like localized change. Uh, it's, it's a framework of thinking that prioritizes um, organizing as a class versus uh, mobilizing folks who have, you know, uh, either have been involved in movements for a long time or um, creating organizations and leadership structures which keep the same people in positions of authority over a long period of time. Um, I think base building is a good response to that. I don't think it's a, uh, I, I don't think it is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? An entirely like cohesive strategy in and of itself. Um, so when it comes to questions of, uh, race and racism in working class movements, I think, uh, it's so important for, uh, for socialists and, um, other organizers to, look at uh, where base building movements have historically um, been victorious or who have, have won big, even in like very recent history in the last couple of years. And those uh, moments have been when uh, organizers and members of organizations unapologetically and uncompromisingly forefront social justice issues in uh, economic campaigns and uh, don't give in to the pressure to say that these things are unrelated. So, um, you know, as a student, I think a lot about like the uh, recent uh, contract campaign at Rutgers University, which won some of the most important um, uh, and strongest protections around um, 
uh, pay inequity, uh, racial pay inequity, and gender pay inequity, um, and um, the you know LA and Chicago teachers unions, which took up the specific needs of Black and Brown and immigrant students in what was ostensibly um, an economic fight about the wages and resources that were being put into the school system. Uh, so I think base building is it's a useful way to think about the broad population of people that you want to construct to to make up our organizations, to make up our movements. Um, but it is not by any stretch of the imagination enough to build um, movements or organizations that effectively um, combat all of the forms of uh, oppression and exploitation that um, divide us as workers and uh, hurt us all. So certainly the... Um, I think, you know, there's the popular labor slogan, obviously, an injury to one is an injury to all. I think it's important to really internalize that, but also not to assume that that's a given, um, that working class people will just uh, automatically uh, reject the um, the many forms of racism that are like we're socialized with in our movements, that those have to be fought explicitly um, in the midst of uh, economic um, discussions and campaigns. I'm Scarlett. Thank you for joining us to talk about uh, base building. Um, and this is definitely an ongoing discussion. I mean, base building is uh, still controversial on the left. I think that it prevent, uh, presents a lot of opportunities for us to organize in a better way. Um, and uh, we should continue debating this. Um, so thank you again for being on the show. Um, this week, uh, we would also like to draw attention to a few things happening on the left. Um, first of all, the International Women's Strike Committee released uh, this week um, a feminist manifesto, um, and the Bread and Roses Collective is working with International Women's Strike on an event which is going to be happening in a couple weeks. Um, we don't have all the details ironed out right there, but it's going to be uniting the demands that we've been writing uh, with other people in the community about a response to COVID-19, uh, and Khaled, you were involved in writing that, so maybe you could talk uh, briefly about that, but the event will be about um, kind of uniting the uh, those demands with the call for an international women's strike or for a strike on May 1st, um, and how our local demands are related to international demands. Yeah, we are turning it into a petition and we're having as many people and organizations sign on to it and we will have it delivered to the governor. And it is, I think, uh, the most radical uh, demands that will be presented. Its focus is on anti-racism, it's on feminism, it's on collective liberation. And that's what we will keep pushing for. So um, uh, thank you, Alex, and thank you, Scarlett. I want to thank our producer, Sean. Uh, please follow us on breadandrosescollective.com and find our uh, Twitter handle at Red Radio Hour. We'll be back next week with more.